It is Friday, and we are working for Crusoe. Sam Park and John Ramey with you on Friday, May 19th, 2023. Taking a tour of the uh, Asian Sun Belt. We'll start in the Southwest. Southwest Asia, Turkey. Elections there. Runoff coming on May 28th. We will go to Pakistan, which I guess we could call South Central yes. Asia, where there is... Um, a former prime minister who is, uh, well, he says he's the subject of a crackdown uh, by the current government. And then we'll go to Thailand, where a reformer has formed a coalition and won an election. Um, but he still has to have that election approved by a military appointed Senate. Um, very, very interesting stuff. So, yeah, uh, forgive this gross analogy, Sam. Turkey would be in the southwest of Asia, like California or Arizona. Pakistan is like New Mexico, because India is like the Texas, right? And then Thailand is kind of the Florida. Now, the scale is not right, but I just want people to understand. No. and, and Americans and are notorious. We have listeners in the United States. So Americans <laughs> are notoriously bad at geography uh, yes. outside of the United States. So that's right. That's my little helper there. But yeah, we are going west to east across across the southern edge of Asia. That's true. Um, but uh, all of these stories have a lot in common. I, I think it's good to start with Turkey just because I think it's the one that's closest to actually being resolved. Uh, that is, I think uh, that Erdogan's victory which uh uh i guess you said that the turkish electoral electoral authority has just confirmed yeah minutes uh, ago yeah uh, they have confirmed is- the the first round of voting so erdogan won like 49 percent, but he didn't get 50 percent, which means there has to be a runoff on the That's 28th right. exactly and uh uh his opponent uh at the head of a six-party coalition uh kamakovic Dorolu, i believe got 45 and change percent. Uh, now, I, I basically just to cut to the chase. I think Erdogan's going to win in the second round. I uh, I don't see any real chance of the uh, Kuricstrolos coalition uh, making up that uh, that four percent. There were some allegations of, for instance, voter suppression in the large cities such as Ankara and, of course, Istanbul, uh, but. It seems to me that that you would have to suppress a lot of votes uh, to to make up that difference in in uh, that the four percentage point difference, especially since uh, turnout in this election was enormous. It was something like eighty eight or eighty nine percent, which is or at least in the eighties, uh, which is unheard of in this country, uh, and it speaks to I think. If we were to ask ourselves, why did Erdogan win, even though he was facing so many enormous challenges, mainly economic? Uh, but it's uncomfortable to talk about. But the fact is that authoritarianism has a real constituency anywhere, not just in, in Asia or the developing world, but it's got a real constituency here in the United States. Different European countries, it's just something that happens. And also, Erdogan, I, you know, he's a religious authoritarianism. I don't have any regard for him whatsoever, but he's no joke. All right. I mean, he 
before uh, when in you know a quarter century or so ago when he was a political dis uh, when he was at the beginning of his political career as a dissident, he served a few months in jail. Uh, he had a coup launched against him seven years ago or so uh, that uh, he withstood and has since urged many people from the system and consolidated power further into his own hands. He's a formidable political operator. And so uh, he's never to be underestimated. Also, for instance, this Pat, just a few days ago, uh, Turkey helped uh, extend the, the, de- the deal through which Ukrainian and Russian grain is exported through the, the Black Sea. So while he's waiting for the second round to happen, he can stand there and say, look at me, I'm, a, I'm an important player on the world stage. I've brought the warring parties to the table and helped feed the hungry masses of the world. This you know, certainly can't hurt him in his campaign for the second round. So we can talk more about this, but I think this story is essentially over. What I think is fascinating. So Erdogan, right, has been the strongman president since about 2000, as you said, quarter century. Um, he wins this first round, but there's got to be a runoff. So he's going to go against uh, Kelic Jaurulu, who is the opposition leader. Yes. And then there's a third guy. And I, I don't know if there's an article in the New York Times about this named Sinan Ogan, who is a far right candidate. And he came in third. That's right. right? And he speaks Russian, got his doctorate from a university or uh, yeah, from a university in Moscow. So he is kind of the X factor. And so immediately this week, after the first round of elections closed, both Erdogan and Kilic Derulu began completely going after migrants, refugees, which, of course, there's a huge number of Syrian refugees in Turkey because Syria has been enduring a civil war for more than 10 years. And Turkey is the big country immediately to the north. Um, Officially, there are 3.6 million Syrian refugees registered in Turkey. That is approximately the population of New Zealand or the city of Los Angeles. In a country, Turkey, 85 million people. Um, but, and they've been there for a very long time. And so uh, uh, Kelic Derulu comes out right after the first round of voting and starts saying, I'm going to get rid of 10 million illegal immigrants, more or less. Right. And then more recently, Erdogan's come out and tried to get to the right of him. So it's this grotesque race to the right. And especially the opposition party. I was reading Kelic Derulu had like, people making the heart sign into their selfies. Like that was kind yeah. of their, their, um, yeah, they were like the feel, the feel good party, but now it's no, no kick out the refugees. Okay. But to be fair, even before the first round happened, Kirich Durolu uh, was promising to get rid of many of the Syrian refugees. Uh, and so this is not something that he's just started doing since the first round. He might be more, a bit more strident about it. But it's not as if he just this just came out of the blue in order to to uh, get votes. But yes, his increased uh, sort of vocality about it. Yeah, that's that's because of of the election. But I think uh, again, I can't see much way that that uh, that Erdogan doesn't prevail next weekend. Uh, that is nine days from now. I think that that's pretty May twenty eighth. Yeah, I did think it was just interesting. Just from a domestic perspective, a U.S. perspective, like, hey, look, there's a southern border crisis in another in another country and people who want to win elections have to kind of score 
possibly cheap or not totally humanitarian points to pick up votes. Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. We've, you know, we've been hearing a lot about the crisis at the southern border here in the United States. And that's a real thing, right? I mean, that, you know, I I don't mean at all to discount that. It's a very serious issue. Uh, But the fact is, migration is a global crisis, right? It's a crisis in Europe. It's a crisis here. It's, and, uh, Every single country that is dealing with it, you know, has is employing this or that measure in order to try and stem the tide or what have you. But I really think that that migration stems from two main causes, which are global economic inequality and climate change. And if you're not going to do anything about those things, you'd better get used to migration because it's not going to stop. Uh, And so, uh, you know, you can sort of fiddle around at the margins, but I don't think that that any of that is going to really have a big impact. I have to say, I do have to applaud the Biden administration for, for instance, trying to set up uh, institutions and bureaucratic offices and such in Central American countries, right, to try and see if they can address some of the uh, reasons that people are leaving those countries or at least smooth over the application process. So it's not this rush of people trying to get through fences at the border, right? It can at least be a more orderly process. And I think that since the United States at least uh, enjoys defining itself as a nation of immigrants and is into uh, to a great extent, there's a chance for the United States to actually I'm not going to say solve the problem, but to be able to manage it in a reasonable way. For instance, we talk a lot about the United States competing for global influence against Russia and China, especially China, right? You think our immigration policies are racist? Yeah, they are, right? They're nothing compared to Chinese immigration policies. China, the U. You can't become a Chinese citizen. It's almost impossible, right? And by the way, China is aging ba- very rapidly. They could do a- very well if they would accept a lot of immigrants, but they are not going to do that. And this is something that the United States has in common with countries of the developing world, or at least more in common than does China. China has a very rapidly aging demographic profile, and ours is actually beginning to become a little bit younger, putting it more in line with the demographic profiles of African countries, Latin American countries, East Asian countries, and things like this. So just sort of culturally and demographically, there's a a greater opportunity for some sort of kinship between ourselves and the developing world that China and Russia simply don't have. Those are two two of the most rapidly aging countries on Earth. Pakistan. As our regular listeners will recall, uh, when we were discussing Nigeria a month or two ago, I said about Nigeria that they're a country that often seems to be on the edge of slipping into all-out crisis, but never quite does so. Uh, Pakistan, I would put in that same category. In fact, their population is almost the same as Nigeria. It's about 220 million. Very large country. They have uh, some of the other same problems as Nigeria. Uh, Muslim insurgency, right? Uh, Now, mind you, Pakistan is an almost entirely Muslim country, whereas Nigeria is not. So that's a difference there. Uh, 
they had enormous floods last year in which an area of Pakistan about the size of the state of Colorado was under water. And by the way, that land has not recovered since then. It's still a crisis. And of course, that also has a lot to do with climate change. Like many developing countries, they've been facing enormous economic problems in the aftermath of the COVID-19 pandemic and because of rising interest rates in the United States, which generally causes some flow of capital out of developing countries. Uh, But politically, Imran Khan, the former prime minister, was ousted as prime minister by a parliamentary no-confidence vote about a year ago. Last year. and Yes, that's right. And he is still the most popular politician in all of Pakistan. Due in no small part because he's a national sports hero. That's right. He was the the captain of the national cricket team, which, by the way, is probably the most popular sport in the world, just in terms of sheer numbers of of fans that it has. I still think soccer's got it beat, but I do. That's not true. I'm sorry, right? Really? Soccer is not very popular in the Indian subcontinent. And that's a lot of people. Yeah, and it's not very popular in China either. Okay. By the way, right now, but China, you know, is, I think their most popular sport is probably basketball. Right. Uh, but in the subcontinent, it's cricket or nothing. No, I right? do know that. And I don't mean to hijack the discussion into sports, but Khan was the captain of the only Pakistani World Cup cricket championship team in 1992. That's right. And I mean, so he's, I, like, uh, he's like Manny Pacquiao to the Philippines or something. Well, yeah, he's like. Ten times to Tom Brady, basically, right? right? I mean, it's this is very serious stuff. And I don't mind you talking about this because this actually is a huge part of his appeal. Well, it's probably why he had the political will to do what you do not do in Pakistan, which is criticize the military. Yes. And that's what led to his no confidence vote in April of 2022. and exactly. got him as prime minister. Yes. And then there have been a cascade of possibly, probably retributive actions taken by the opposition with the tacit approval of the military that's right against him and and it's come to a head now that's right for instance he's been uh, facing large numbers of corruption charges which by the way is not at all unusual for a pakistani prime minister right or a former prime minister right for instance khan's own government leveled such charges against nawaz sharif as an aside just again, to put this back in a United States domestic context, this is why you don't have a rush to prosecute political opponents, even sometimes if they deserve prosecution, because it does start a doom loop cycle of everybody who wins an election prosecutes the loser of the election. And that's not good for democracy, as we're seeing that's, in Pakistan. That's exactly right. And in fact, uh, uh, Nawaz Sharif, the previous prime minister, is the brother of the current prime minister Shabazz right? Sharif. Yeah, their their party which I can't remember what they're called uh is essentially a family fiefdom of the of the Sharif family. Uh and by the way that's not at all unusual for subcontinental parties for instance the Congress party in India is basically a fiefdom of the Gandhi family, right? Uh the uh, Rahul Gandhi is the uh the son of the previous leader of Congress. 
right? So this is uh, not at all unusual. And in fact, this happens in many countries. When we get to Thailand, we'll be talking about this also. Uh, all right. So Khan got arrested. Yes. Because last of these corruption. Yeah. Last week he gets erupt, uh, arrested because there's a big corruption trial and thousands of his supporters flood into the street. There have been eight confirmed deaths. Reports yes. are that it's higher than that. And thousands, thousands of arrests, thousands of arrests and people destroyed military property. Yes, that's right? and that's what marks this out as different. Right. Is that the, the protesters seem to be willing to actively take on the military. And that usually doesn't happen. And so perhaps naturally, the Pakistani military is now calling for any protesters arrested to be tried in a military court as opposed to a civilian one, which is gnarly. And it's just kind of up the ante, right? Because this is explicitly anti-military. Again, that is a big red line, unwritten rule that you do not cross in Pakistani political discourse. And yes, Khan and started it. More than anybody else. Yes. I mean, other prime ministers have sort of dipped their toe in that sort of water, but they realized it was too dangerous. The Pakistani military is by far the most important and powerful institution in the national life of Pakistan. And they always have been. And to the point, I mean, again, it's 220 million people and their military is very large. Therefore, the the military itself contains many, 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 many people. And Uh, is nuclear. Yes, they have. They they do have nuclear weapons. Uh, And so even inside the military, there are numerous factions, but they're entirely opaque. Nobody knows what the factions are or who's in what faction because they don't have any accountability to anybody. Right. So all these other institutions, the political parties, the Supreme Court versus the Supreme, the uh, I don't know if they're called the Supreme Court, but the highest court in Pakistan dismissed Khan's arrest last week and let him go. The interior ministry came right back out and said, well, we're going to arrest him again anyway. Uh, I mean, this is you know, these are not institutions as we understand the meaning of that word. Right. They're, they're just going, well, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Right. Uh, and the military is entirely unaccountable. Another problem Pakistan has been having recently is uh, terrorist attacks from the Pakistani Taliban, which is an offshoot of the next door Afghanistan Taliban. And. The. These terrorist attacks have increased since the fall of Afghanistan a couple of years ago when the United States pulled out. But the problem is that the Afghan Taliban has always been a client of the Pakistani inter-services intelligence, which is part of the military. Uh, But they've always enjoyed the support of the ISI. And so suddenly they're taking over Afghanistan. And as a result, their sort of sibling organization is attacking the Pakistani government, right? They've actually set off suicide bombs inside of police compounds, all right? I mean, this is very serious. These are enormous problems. And so this is a huge mess. Now, again, it's possible that the whole nation won't dissolve into crisis because somehow it never does. Uh, But this seems to be the most serious uh, period of unrest that we've ever seen. And of course, like Turkey, uh, that had an unsuccessful military coup and has had several successful ones during my lifetime, as you'll recall, uh, at the time of 9-11, the, uh, the head of Pakistan's government then was General Pervez Musharraf, 
who had seized power in a coup against an elected civilian government just a few years earlier, maybe possibly even as little as one year earlier. So uh, these issues are all coming to a head right now, along with climate change, which caused the floods uh, last year, and the global economic crisis from COVID-19 and its aftermath. And so hopefully there's some way out of this, but it's difficult to see what it could be. A final point I would make about this is that when the military engages in these maneuvers to engineer the no confidence vote and things like this, they do this all the time. They've done it over and over again. But they've never faced a politician like Imran Khan before, someone who has that level of popularity. And I think that's another big difference now is that Khan can put people on this. He's sort of like Erdogan, right? He's no joke. Khan has said that these cases against him charged in more than 100 cases against him, including corruption, terrorism and blasphemy. Are specifically engineered so that he can't run again and win. He's explicitly claiming that. And he might be right about that. Uh, But his house is surrounded by police. Right. I mean, it's not like he's accused of harboring 40 terrorists or something. Yes. And he says uh, that he's not harboring terrorists, but it's possible that some of the violent protesters are inside his Home, which I'm sure is very nice home, right? Uh, uh, he said in the what the France 24 interview that he invited the journalists in, and that kind of diffused the situation. Yes, that's right. I, I think that was a Deutsche Welle interview, if I'm not mistaken. But I can't remember. Uh, but we'll have to see how this plays out. It's very serious. It's a very serious uh, situation, and uh, it's difficult to see how it resolves. Uh, honestly, I think it'll just continue until the elections. We'll have to see what happens, the, which I believe are in, in October, if I'm not mistaken. Pakistan uh, has to be the most politically chaotic nuclear power on Earth, right? Uh, yeah, I would have to say so. I can't. Uh, another one doesn't readily spring, spring to mind. mind yeah, right? I mean, I'm nuclear, just... uh, uh, North Korea isn't particularly chaotic just because they have yeah, a, you know, right. uh, uh, an entire autocracy that, you know, there's no dissent, there's no protest or anything no. like that. Um, but yeah, it's it's that kind of uh, ups the ante. I mean, you know, God bless Nigeria. We don't have to worry about somebody yeah, getting their nuclear have, weapons. Have bomb. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, um, just kind of a real world reality. And to be fair, uh, Nigeria, for instance, as we've learned recently, one of the main advantages of democracy is really just the peaceful transfer of power. That's the most, actually the most important thing about it, which suddenly we all learned, uh, you know, in 2021, right? Uh, But, you know, sort of political science scholars have understood this for quite some time. Well, it's so rare in the history of government, humanity, right? It just didn't happen really consistently ever until our current age. And honestly, that might answer the question we had about Nigeria a month or so ago. So, well, why, you know, this was their election was widely seen to be corrupt and and irregular, to, to put it mildly. But why was there no unrest? Because at, at least they can say, look, at least we had an election, right? We and not a it. war. Yeah, and we have a new president who took over from an old president through an electoral process, and nobody had to get killed for it. 
Uh, and honestly, that's not nothing, right? As corrupt and irregular as it might have been, but we can all just go on with our lives and worry about, you know, the the other enormous problems that they the currency crisis that they're having, for example, right? Uh, and so this uh, is a sort of salutary reminder of why these things are important. And that might be a good jumping off place to move to Thailand. All right. Thailand, 70 million people, Southeast Asia, the pro-democracy opposition party move forward. Yes. Formerly the future forward party. Uh, Captain by Pita Limjaranrat. Yes. was a 42 year old Harvard graduate who grew up a little bit in New Zealand and is good on social media has cobbled together a coalition with seven other parties, and they had a huge win in the election for parliament. Yes. Now, the the main other party <laughs> but, that they're that they're allying with <clears throat> is the Thai Party, uh, uh, which is headed by the daughter of the former prime minister, Thaksin Shinawak. Uh, and she's also the niece of the uh, previous prime minister, whose name I can't remember, but that, that, that is Toxin's sister. And so, again, this party is essentially a family affair. Uh, this is the sleeper story. In other words, we, we previewed the Turkey and Pakistan stories at the end of last week. Uh, but we didn't mention Thailand because nobody thought that, that you know, it was, it was they basically thought it was just the rerun of everything that's been happening in Thailand this century, which is the military party versus Toxin's party, right? And maybe Toxin's party will win, but the military won't let them take over. This performance by the Move Forward party was totally unexpected. Nobody saw this coming. And it's uh, actually a sort of feel-good democratic story so far. We'll have to see how it turns out. I mean, PETA wants to get rid of the royal defamation law. You can't criticize the Thai royal family without going to jail for 15 years. Yes. And the previous- he wants to end the draft. Right. He yes. wants to do these radical things. And of course, the military controls the Senate in Thailand. It's all military appointed. And That's they can right. basically just say, no, ignore the election results. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a, a 500 seat elected lower house of parliament and then the senate is entirely appoint- appointed by the the government which is now a mil- the, and lately a military government and, and move forward got three and the coalition got 376 of the 500 seats yes and uh uh the 250 feet 250 seat senate is the part that's uh that's appointed by the military so you need a majority of the total number of 750 seats which they don't have right they've got just uh, just under 300 i think right uh no they got th- uh, 313 excuse me of the right. 376 okay. needed so so yeah so they still need about 60 some odd more seats right so what are they going to do there might be some senators right uh for instance older senators right who you know don't really need to worry about their future political viability, right? But are there 60 senators? That's difficult to see, right? Uh, So they're going to have to try and win over some of the other lower house legislators in order to form a parliamentary majority. We'll have to, but at the same time, 
just like with Turkey and Pakistan, right? Uh, this conflict between the military and and civilian governance has frequently resulted in large-scale street protests, usually in favor of the Shinawatra Party, uh, that is the Pertai Party. And if the military stands in the... I mean, again, like you say, they've got... 300 seats out of a 500 seat elected lower house of parliament that's 60 some odd percent right if the military is going to stand in the way of that large a political mandate there's going to be trouble uh and it's a question of how much trouble is the military willing to take which could be quite a lot right i don't know uh but Again, for me, anyway, it was just refreshing that some party that I'd you know barely heard of before suddenly came first in the election, right? And so there was a third way, right? Uh, a lot of the commentators have talked about how, for instance, Thaksin Shinawatra, the founder of the Piratai Party, who came to power at the beginning of this century, uh, he was a media tycoon, uh, but his electoral base was rural. Right. In, in a way, he was similar to Donald Trump. Right. Uh, and also sort of populist. Right. But he was the candidate who spoke in favor of, you know, the forgotten people outside of Bangkok and outside of the tourist de de destinations and things like this. Right. And they loved him. Right. Uh, uh, Peter, the head of the move forward party his base is mainly urban uh and that's new uh there has never been an urban sort of opposition candidate to the military before so if you combine his base with the Purtai rural base you've got a very broad demographic mandate in favor of moving towards civilian governance uh and to me, this is the most fascinating story that we're talking about today, right? Because, again, things are worse in Pakistan now than they ever have been, but it's all in the same bucket that, that we dip into when we talk about Pakistan all the time, right? Erdogan's probably going to win. Guess what? He always wins, so this is not a big deal, right? It's the Thailand story. That's, that's really the most interesting to me. Well, and we were talking about Sudan a couple of weeks ago. That is a situation where the military ostensibly was going to hand power to the civilians and then have just kind of said, no, no we're taking no, we're our ball. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, and it served both. And if you look at both of the warring military factions, it served both of their interests to make this a purely military power struggle. It's like that. So that civilian governance doesn't enter into it at all. Right. And this uh, is why in, in the United States, there is a long tradition of being extremely careful about the military, like our current uh, defense secretary had to be granted an exemption to perform his role because he had so recently been actively in the military. Right. That's right. You, you want that. James Mattis had to do the same thing when he became Donald Trump's defense secretary. And then didn't we who was the chief of staff who was mortified and later apologized for appearing with Trump during the 
George Floyd protests in 2020 because yeah, Mark Milley. That's right. Yeah, that was Mark Milley. Who, the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's still the chairman. Yeah. Right. Uh, he did not wish to lend a military endorsement of an anti-protest. That's right. Uh, and uh, a whole conversation uh, battery of former and serving defense officials and signed a letter uh, in the after the 2020 election saying that there should be no military involvement in resolving any dispute over that election. I mean, right? I, as, and, as much as we talk about in the United States, how much we appreciate the military and, you know, support the troops and, and all the sloganeering, the restraint that has been consistently shown by the elite levels of the military uh, throughout the history of the Republic is something that can be taken for granted until you see places like Thailand. That's right. Or Pakistan. Yeah. Or Myanmar. All right. Um, uh, and this it's been hard won. For instance, during the Civil War, uh, President Lincoln constantly badgered uh, Andrew McClellan, who was the commander of the Union Army, saying, you need to finish the Confederacy. You need to destroy them. Uh, and McClellan refused uh, and, in fact, ran against Lincoln for president in 1864 and thankfully lost. But this was. We couldn't imagine something like that today. There was uh, some dis dis disputes between Douglas MacArthur and uh, Harry Truman during the Korean War. Uh, and that seemed like it might bubble into the same sort of situation as McClellan versus Lincoln. Thankfully, it did not. Uh, but there's a great story about uh, George Washington, and I don't know if it's true, right? It's a sort of folkloric type story, and this might be the, uh, the best way to end our episode today, right? Uh, but the story is that when George Washington was president, the first president of the United States, you know, he'd be meeting people, dignitaries and such, and, and, and people would always say to him, it's such an honor to meet you, General Washington. And Washington would invariably say, excuse me, I am President Washington, because it was important to Washington that it be understood that his was a civilian office that he held because he had won an election, not because he had won a war. And we don't generally think of George Washington as being amongst the intellectual architects of the revolution. We should not think of him that way because he really wasn't one. But he did understand the principles over which the Revolutionary War was being fought and had been fought. And he was and took great pains to make sure that he at least tried to make other people understand those principles as well. If anybody has any questions, comments, uh, show ideas, or other thoughts they'd like to pass along, you can email me, Media at gmail.com. E. Sam Park, I am John Ramey. We'll talk to you next week. Enjoy your weekend.